You have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok Shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow, I could really use Current. I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. My name is Biknak Kao. I tell people my first name is pronounced like Bic Lighter, knock on wood. I believe in public service and the life-changing power of music. My career has spanned digital media and marketing in startups, media, entertainment, governments, nonprofits. I currently serve as Senior Advisor Communications for the Office of the Superintendent at the Los Angeles Unified School District. Welcome to the Vietnamese. I'm your host, Kenneth Nguyen. Being part of a culture of nearly 100 million Vietnamese people in the world today comes with a lot of pain, proud history, and privilege. Join me as I highlight and explore the Vietnamese experience from all over the world. How has being Vietnamese changed for you all these years? Um, a few years ago, I was COO at the nonprofit Define American, and our founder, Jose Antonio Vargas, made the following question a central part of our work, which actually reminds me of what you always ask about being Vietnamese. is we ask people, how do you define American? And in our work telling stories about undocumented immigrants, we were asking this question because so many people say that undocumented people are not Americans, when in fact the folks who work the hardest and suffer the most to make it to America often embody the most American of values, independence, self-determination, grit, and resilience. And when I think about being Vietnamese or Vietnamese American, I also think about those values and what it took in terms of courage and suffering for my family to make it here. Um, you know, as, as Vietnamese refugees, um, obviously my family was not undocumented, um, but their journey was harrowing and, and came close to being deadly because my mom went into labor with my brother on the fishing boat. Um, my brother's origin story is, is a wild tale on its own. Um, and so those are the kinds of things that I think about when I think about being Vietnamese, you know, as people who came here. Um, for myself, my identity as a Vietnamese person has been fluid. Um, when I was born, I was decidedly more Vietnamese than American. My mother named me Gao Bích Ngọc, which makes people treat me like a foreigner. Um, you know, I have to tell people to call me Bích Ngọc because it's just kind of impossible to work with. And um, I remember only speaking and even dreaming in Vietnamese as a child. 
but that changed fairly quickly um, when I learned English as a toddler. I just was able to find new worlds in literature. And um, as a young person, I embraced a lot of American culture. I love rock and roll. Um, you know, music culture has been a huge part of my life. Um, and so in a way, it felt like I was more American Vietnamese than Vietnamese American for a long time as a young person. I just became obsessed with the English language and becoming a, a great writer. And I realized that if I studied hard enough, I could work my way out of poverty. poverty. And um, so getting into and having college paid for was basically my main goal in life until I was 18. And now that I'm 40, I feel more Vietnamese than ever. Um, so much of my childhood was shaped by generational trauma. And now I've spent my adult life learning how to experience joy. And one of the things I do is I work on experiencing Vietnamese culture on my own terms. Um, I have a very curated Instagram feed and I've become connected with Vietnamese friends and organizations that share my political values, such as Pivot. Um, one of my favorite relationships from Instagram is my friendship with the Ravenous couple whom you interviewed recently. Um, I really loved hearing their stories on your podcast. Um, they're just such humble people, but they're hugely influential in preserving and sharing Vietnamese food and culture, as well as connecting people from all over the world. And through them, I met um, Wing Fan Mai, author of The Mount Singh, which I think is our generation's most meaningful novel about being Vietnamese. And I could talk all day about how the internet has changed my life, but one of the ways that it's done so is that it's allowed me to feel closer to Vietnamese culture and people. And about five years ago, I started using my name publicly with its diacritical marks because I figured if my name is already so Vietnamese, I might as well use it at its full power. And I still tell people to call me Vic Nock to make it easier, but I think it looks cooler with the diacritical marks. And so in some ways, I feel like I'm at peak Vietnamese right now. The one thing that I'm taking away right now in this moment is the, the comfort level that you have arrived at with getting more into becoming Vietnamese or being more okay with the Vietnamese identity. And in the, uh, the process of being okay with your name, uh, we should probably start there because um, it is one of, um, it's a, such a beautiful name, Big Ngọc Gao. But the kids, when they were younger, the, stu the teachers, I can imagine the way it's spelt. Um, was that something that you had to contend with um, in, a, in a very like fiery way to fight back uh, with in the spelling that, of your name? Yeah, I think it made me stronger in a way because kids started calling bitch fairly early. I was probably six the first time I heard it. And the funny thing is that when I was about 15, my mom came into my room and said, hey, so I just learned that your name looks like a bad word. And do you think you want to change it to something wow. easy like Jennifer? And I was like, it took you 15 years to figure this out. 
Um, and I just laughed because there was no story. way at that point mm. that I was going to change my name because, you know, I, I had already gotten really comfortable with it. But as a kid, it, it, it was hard, but it wasn't it wasn't insurmountable. Um, and I think the thing that makes it more powerful these days is that it's unforgettable, is that once people get how to say it to, you know, a certain extent, um, you know, people still butcher the spelling of it every once in a while. I think the thing that annoys me the most is people cut it in half and will call me just Bic when I, I want to be called Bic Knock. So, you know, there's, there's always going to be something, but people do try and they do really try hard to, you know, um, to use the diacritical marks. They think, they think it's like more like an accent um, and no one knows how to put the underdot on the O. Um, I actually don't really type it myself. I, I have it um, set in my phone so that when I type in BN, it pops my full name out. So there are different ways that I've worked with it. I, I have a lot of fun with it. You know, I, I had a teacher who, you know, did the roll call every day in high school calling me bitch. And I thought it was hilarious. And I let it go for a while. And well, so she, she you know, did that intentionally. She no, had to. No? She didn't. I don't think she knew. I think people just are really ignorant and don't ask questions. And as a kid, I would mess with them a little bit more. These days, I'm, you know, I'll, I'll just let them know off the bat how to say my name because it really freaks people out. You know, the history of your name, the origin story of dealing with that at six years old here in the U.S. is very telling because, um, I, you know, I, I talk about the, this theme all the time and I ask people and I ask guests, would you, looking back at it right now, I know this is such a silly question, but I always like, I'm dying to know this all the time. Looking back now, would you have changed it or would you have preferred your mom naming you something else? I don't think so. You know, there are a lot of things about my childhood that I would have taken back if possible, but that's definitely not one not, of them. Mm -hmm. I think, I think my mom named me something that she thought was beautiful, that she, you know, she had really good intentions with it at the hospital. Um, the nurses were actually Vietnamese and they, they told her not to, to, to name me that. And they didn't know how to explain it to her. They, they said, you know, in America, people don't have two first names. You should name her something simpler. And she actually stuck my name together so that Bicknock is one word on my on a lot of paperwork. And it's actually made my life worse in that when Bicknock is doesn't have a space in it, it's just a bunch of consonants slammed together wow. and it makes no sense. And so um, so I've I've had to change it so that it actually looks like it's how it's supposed to be. So the nurses who tried to make my mom not name me Bicknock actually unintentionally made my name worse. Well, I am, again, I'm grateful to hear the, the story of uh, your name. And this leads into um, this next part of your story, which is when you were 18, you led a really big lawsuit uh, here in California. And I think when I you know, having that space to talk about that, you know, this, we have a long time, we can talk about things. And we talked about your naming, uh, you growing up with that name and dealing with it. And now I understand, well, this is a, a sort of a natural progression of the fight, the, or the fighter in you to, to take things up to, to the next level to make things right, and to not really 
be afraid of, of, of tackling something that we're about to talk about. So can we um, get into how this uh, basically came into your life? When I was a teenager, I, I went to a high school in Alhambra called Mark Keppel, and it was in a school district with three high schools, San Gabriel and Alhambra were the other schools. And we were known as the kids who were um, from the poor neighborhood. We had a school that had not been renovated since it was built in the 1930s. Whereas both of the other schools, you know, were in really good shape. San Gabriel was almost entirely rebuilt during that time. And, you know, it just felt unfair. And, and our school was physically falling apart. There were, you know, kids who were playing in one of the gyms um, when pieces of tiles were falling from the ceiling. Um, there, you know, we had textbooks that were from the 70s and my teachers would say, well, the, the content is still the same. And it wasn't though, because we were reading mm. things in, in the textbooks that were talking about like the OPEC oil crisis and nothing after that, because that was present day to the books. And so it, it just felt really unfair. And, and I worked on the school newspaper and was really interested in journalism as a kid. I, I used to have a journalism degree. And so I, I started clipping stories from local newspapers about our school and how it was physically falling apart. It was something that was covered fairly extensively. And I, I didn't really have a sense of what I was gonna do with those stories, but mm. I was collecting them sort of to get, to, to figure out like a narrative of what I was trying to tell about my school. Um, as a newspaper editor, and we wrote we wrote about it ourselves consistently, um, you know. And my, in high school, we also you know participated in all kinds of ridiculous things to try to raise money for the school. There were um, there were local ballot measures that people were trying to pass to raise property taxes to to fund fixing up our school. And I remember one of those local bond measures failed by less than 300 votes, I think. And, and it was just a crushing thing to know that, you know, our community did not want to support our particular school. And, and obviously it's, it's the people who are homeowners who are voting down these kinds of ballot measures are the, the people who have money, the people who wanted these fixes to, to happen for the school were renters because they're, you know, the, they're the people whose kids go to this particular school. So it, you know, it was that type of stuff that was really frustrating. And we even participated in a K-Rock um, radio station contest where we were trying to win $10,000 for our school. And it came with a concert from Blink-182, but that really wasn't what I, you know, was trying to go for. Um, you know, I, I was like a little punk rock kid, so I had seen them many times. And by the time they broke on the radio, um, they were already kind of like the not cool band. But, um, but you know, we tried really hard. We were finalists for this K-Rock contest. And, and the radio station didn't realize that so many schools were, were actually going to get um, all of the things that they asked us to do because it was basically a scavenger hunt. And they ended up with so many finalists, they, they thought that no one was going to win or maybe one school was going to win. So they did a spelling bee and I actually then got shoved into doing the spelling bee, which I'm not 
you know, I'm a pretty good speller, but I'm not a spelling bee person. And so, um, you know, I, I lost the spelling bee and was really bummed because it felt like a lot of so much of what we were trying to do was on the shoulders of children. You know, um, my, my journalism class and, you know, newspaper didn't get any funding from the school. The football program would get $2,000 a year to, um, to spend on the program as part of the school budget. But our program was loaned at $2,000 every year and we had to pay it back and we sold advertising. So I basically ran a sales team as a child. And then um, we applied for grants and were able to upgrade our computers from Apple Classics, which, you know, by the time it's like 1997, we were not supposed to be using Apple Classics in our classrooms. Those are really from like the, I think the late eighties. And um, so we're using these outdated computers and through a grant that we as children applied for, we, you know, we were able to buy um, IMAX, the, you know, remember the first original IMAX that were really colorful and, and yeah. beautiful. We had a full suite of those in our classroom that we would not have otherwise been have, able to get if we had not taken the initiative to apply for a grant. So let, and, me, let me ask you a question. Um, the, the, sorry to interrupt, but yeah. the, now the, the lawsuit that um, the class action lawsuit was settled after you left high school, right? Yeah. So now, it, it was settled when I was a senior in college. And so, so all of like what I'm telling you sort of yeah. led me into this lawsuit in, you know, in my microbiology class, um, my senior year, I was 17 at the time my teacher announced randomly that he had met a lawyer from the ACLU who was looking for students to join a class action lawsuit and about the state of our school. And he said, come see me afterward if you are interested. So I just came up to talk to him and he gave me a phone number for a woman named Catherine Lehman at the ACLU of Southern California. And, and I just called her. And she, she came by my house and we sat down and talked through a lot of these things that I told you. Yeah. And, um, and then she asked me if I wanted to be a plaintiff and, and I said, yes. Um, and then I gave her that box of newspaper clippings that I have, you know, I had been curating for four years at that point. Um, it was a fairly substantial box yeah. and she was kind of shocked by it because she said, you know, I, what were you doing with this? And I said, I don't know, obviously like there was no purpose. And yet in some ways I was preparing for you. Wow. And uh, you know, the basis of the lawsuit was, you know, we were asking the state of California to fulfill its promise to students that all students should receive a decent education. We are not asking for even a good or a great education. And, and you know, the, the students who are part of the lawsuit were from poor neighborhoods all over California. Um, most of the schools were majority minority kids. And um, some of them were in worse shape than my school. Some of them were, you know, in slightly better shape, but they were sort of all spanned the map with some pretty serious problems. And 
most of the students were much younger than me. Their, their parents had signed them up. The kid whose name is on the lawsuit because he was the first student to join is, um, was Eli Williams. And I believe at the time he was 12. So his parents signed him up for it. Mm. And, you know, he of course participated, but I was the only kid who turned 18 by the time that we filed. So I actually, I actually filed by myself. I did not tell my parents about it. Um, I'm actually not sure what they thought this lawyer was doing with me, you know, so many afternoons after school, but you know, I assume maybe they thought she was my tutor. I just didn't say anything about it because I didn't want them to try to stop me from doing it. Um, you know, as you know, Vietnamese people fled communism and really try to stay out of trouble with the government. It's just not something that you're supposed to do is to challenge the government. And here I was, you know, as a child deciding that I was going to sue the state of California and the California Department of Education and the governor. And so um, it was kind of a weird thing. I told my dad one day that I needed him to drop me off at this building, you know, in LA. Um, I was going to skip school and that I was not going to get an excused absence because I couldn't lie that I was sick or anything, but that I would explain it to him later and that I was going to be on the news. And I have no idea why he did it without actually asking me any questions. Mm. He just left me there. And then he came back a few hours later and picked me up. Um, And that was my first press conference. Um, When we filed, it was on the anniversary of the decision of Brown versus Board. And it felt like a big deal. But at the same time, I didn't really have any idea that it was going to be as big of a deal as it was going to be even now. Um, You know, we settled in 2004 after a lot of back and forth. Um, The governor immediately hired O'Malvany and Myers instead of using state lawyers. So he was spending tons of money you know, hundreds of dollars an hour with these lawyers who were essentially trying to intimidate children into dropping this lawsuit. Um, He sued every school district of every child involved. And in saying that it was the school district's fault that these kids were not getting the education that they felt like they deserved. So he he sued my school district. My superintendent sent a fairly threatening letter to my family, trying to get my family to come in to talk to them. And, you know, my parents got it and they kind of freaked out. I took it from them and told them not to, not to worry about it. I gave it to my lawyer and, and said, you know, please deal with this. And I actually never heard from my school district again. Um, And so, you know, I, it, it was kind of funny to have a team of lawyers behind me in doing something that I had been trying to figure out for so long. And um, the governor's lawyers called something like a thousand depositions of as many people as they possibly could. And we had to get, you know, we had to get an injunction against all of his lawsuits against the school districts to stop them from moving forward. Then we had to pare down the number of people that they could depose. And in deposing people, it took them years to get to that point. And so I I think I was 19 by the time that they deposed me and they had spent many days 
deposing a bunch of children, kids as young as like eight years old were part of this lawsuit. And there was a boy whose, um, whose father was already dead. His mother got killed really, you know, during that time. And she was the one who signed him up for the lawsuit. And when they, they tried to depose him, he said, I don't want to go into this deposition. He was grieving his mother and he asked, can someone from my family answer these questions for me instead? And they said, no, you have to do it. And this little boy went in there and he answered their questions, um, which I thought was really brave and really amazing. But they were yelling at him about you know, things in his school. They, you know, they would say things to kids like, what is the dead rat? on the floor of your classroom have anything to do with your education. Um, and it got them an incredible amount of bad press. And, and I recently actually emailed the Los Angeles Times education reporter, Howard Bloom, and said, do you remember writing this story in LA Weekly, you know, back when he was the education reporter there? And he described the scene of these, um, of these depositions and how awful the state was being to children. And, and, um, and he actually said, you know, I remember that very distinctly because it was such a weird thing for them to do. Um, and so, you know, and I told him I was part of this lawsuit that you covered. Do you, you know, do you remember being at the, the first press conference? And he wasn't, he wasn't sure, but he, he definitely remembered the lawsuit because it's, it's been such a consequential thing. Um, but I remember my deposition very clearly because it was something that I studied for, like I was going into battle and I knew that they were doing this to children. I knew that they really probably didn't know how old I was. They, you know, it, and so at that point, I, you know, I was an adult and, but I probably looked 12 too, you know? And so I, you know, I walked into this room at the O'Melveny and Myers office in downtown. And I just came with as much information as I could possibly remember about the lawsuit. And they just kept asking me questions about things. And, and, you know, at one point they asked me, you know, why I thought I, my school did so badly when I was a USC student. And I, you know, I said to them, like, what, what do you, you know, what if I could have done better? You know, I fought for my education my entire life. It wasn't like it came easy. And I was lucky to have some great teachers, but my school certainly didn't help. And my, my counselor at my high school when I came to him with a four-year plan of what I was going to do in high school before I actually started my freshman year, he said, oh, well, I'd be happy if you graduated high school, you know? And so I was dealing with these resources that were really not great. And yet I made it to USC on a scholarship. And she was telling me that, you know, I was probably going to be, I was fine then. But I just kept answering her questions, you know, in sort of a rapid fire, very matter of fact way. And she was actually a very young lawyer who was probably fairly inexperienced. I think they were sending in lawyers thinking that, you know, we were, we were going to be easy. And my deposition was so hard for them that their lawyer started shaking under the table. Like I could see her hands just sort of 
trembling and she ended my deposition at lunch. It was supposed to end at 5 p.m. And when I walked out the door, my lawyer gave me a high five. And that was probably one of the proudest moments of my life because I, I really went to bat and I, I felt like that day I, I hit a home run. I'm horrified at the battles that happen behind the scenes that we don't know about and the struggles that you know, the school system and the education system in California. Do you think that it's gotten better since those years or do you think it's gotten worse? So in some ways it's gotten better. In some ways it's, I think it's gotten worse in that, you know, our funding for education is, is really poor in California. We get, I think students get something like $16,000 a year in funding, um, and in New York, it's about $30,000. There, there are states that are funding education at much, much higher levels. And, and I would argue that you know, every student deserves even more than that. Because if we are going to be spending $300,000 per prisoner in some of our most yeah. expensive prisons, why are we not funding children in the same way? And I've been in a lot of classrooms through my work. And in, in some ways, I'm seeing some of the best educations that have I, I have ever seen in my life, because these days there's things that there are programs that didn't exist when we were kids. There are dual language programs where kids starting from kindergarten, Garden. you know, are learning a second language. And by the time they finish school, they are completely fluent. I've, I've seen second graders who are able to talk about really deep topics like gentrification in both English and Spanish and, and discussing what it means, you know, what the word gentificación means wow. and how it's not actually, a, you know, an exact translation of gentrification because gente has to do with people and it's talking about people and so I've seen these amazing programs that are now at work in schools that a lot of kids didn't have access to when we were kids there are magnet programs that are really amazing there is a high school um, called Daniel Pearl that's a magnet just for journalism that I would have killed to go to mm -hmm. as a child um, none of these things existed when I was a kid and, um, and so I, you know, I, I go to these schools now and, and I'm sort of amazed by it, but I don't think that, you know, schooling is equitable across every single school, across the entire state, you know, across the entire country. And that may never be achievable, but I think it's something that we want to work toward. And one of the reasons that the Williams lawsuit has been so consequential is that it not only secured the biggest settlement in history for education, um, the amount of money that we were able to secure over time came out to about a billion dollars. And um, the funny thing is when I told my parents about that lawsuit um, settlement that day in 2004, and I, I told my dad that it was gonna be for a billion dollars. And he, he looked at me and said, so do you get some of this money? And I said, no, this is for kids in school. I, I don't even go to, you know, public school anymore. And he kind of went, oh, fine. And he walked away from me. And it was such a funny Vietnamese moment of, you know, you 
you know, you did this really big thing and like none of the money goes to you or your family. It's kind of a thing that I'm not proud of. And this is a, a really good thing that you brought up because it projects a, a, a lack of altruism in our community. And I'm not, look, I'm not generalizing and I'm not saying that all Vietnamese people are like that. But in our community, in Vietnamese American society, there is this sort of attitude that if it doesn't directly benefit me, I'm not going to get involved in that fight. And for you at even such a young age to be like, it's never been about money for you. It's about justice. It's about, you know, finding that equality uh, across the board for everybody. Uh, it's sorely lacking in our culture and I'm trying not to make generalizations and yeah but where does that come from or better question is how do we make that better uh in our our cultural uh living uh in 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 Vietnamese American society because we are now at a place in our time where we do have the funds as a collective uh group to really make a difference, to amp up our, 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 our group. And it's not happening in the way that it, it could potentially be. I think the roots of it are in, you know, Asian culture taking, you know, the idea of like, we take care of our own, you know, is that we as a community or as our family, you know, our elders are supposed to live with us, that everyone always, you know, that that children live with their parents until they get married. And, you know, the idea of the multi-generational household is a very Vietnamese thing. And I think that is part of it, is that that people are constantly trying to do better for themselves and for their families. And so when my parents wanted me to make money, I think that they wanted me to do better and they also wanted themselves to do better. And, and I, don't, I, I, I don't really identify with that, but I also understand that that's what people were raised with and that's what they know. And, and that's what they see as a value. And, I, and part of it you know, reflects out into the culture that we see outside in America in that there are very few um, unhoused Vietnamese and Asian people because our families will not allow that to happen. Um, you know, I've had family members who fell on hard times. They were very, very distant family members, but people would help each other. And, and if, if you don't have a place to live, you're going to go crash in somebody's, you know, house. There's just, there's, there's almost no situation under which anyone in my family would end up on the street. And I think that is actually a very interesting thing. Um, and, you know, as, as a society, we, I think we discount that sometimes because we, we don't, we just don't see it and we don't really think about it. So, yeah. so there are some positive aspects of it, but I do think that the idea that we as a collective could work for the greater good is, you know, and, and to work for justice is, is becoming more of a, a thing that 
that we are thinking about and talking about and trying to achieve. And, and I, I would like it to accelerate. I would like it to be bigger, but I am, you know, meeting people online and, and, you know, I, I met chef two on Instagram and that's how I got connected to you. And I'd been listening to your podcast for a while. Um, but you know, you've interviewed a lot of people who are working for justice in, in a myriad of ways. And I think that this generation of Vietnamese Americans is very different from, you know, our elders. We, we did not grow up affected by the war in the same way. I think it's permeated our lives, but um, most of us that, you know, most of the Vietnamese people that I know are not Republicans. And, you know, and we think about politics in a different way. I was raised to be Republican, not, not because my parents had any sort of Republican ideology. It was just sort of the Republicans were anti-communist and therefore we are South Vietnamese and we're supposed to be Republican as well. And at one point, someone explained to me that the reason we were Republicans was because Nixon wanted to help the South Vietnamese and the Democrats didn't. And I was like, whoa, that is a really weird rewriting of Nixon's history because I am pretty sure he didn't care about anyone but himself. <laughs> I mean, we're like hanging with on a thin thread with that one, right? Yeah, so, so all of these like really weird explanations of why our politics were a particular way as a kid just did not make sense to yeah. me. And by the time, you know, I graduated from high school, I had converted my parents and, and into being Democrats and they are, you know, they are proud Democrats. They have voted Democratic since then and, and continue to do so. Um, and so for me, I think some of this is changing for the better in terms of how Vietnamese people care about, um, about that. But I, I do think there's always going to be an element of like, how much money are you going to make? And, you know, how well are you going to do? And my parents have never understood what I do for a living. And so, you know, at a certain point when I worked at Warner Brothers Records, my dad, you know, I, I was explaining that we were selling records and, and my dad said, you know, you make a lot of money for somebody who sells CDs. And I think he thought that I meant I worked at a record store. <laughs> and, you know, and I just laughed and I said, you know, I'm really, really good at it. You have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok Shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow. <laughs> I could really use Current. <laughs> I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. <laughs> you know, you, you bring up a great point. This idea of like taking care of the microcosm of your family, 
uh, it takes up a lot of time. You have to um, dedicate a lot of time. And when you're taking care of your family and the internal structure, you don't have a whole lot of time to really worry about what, what's going on in the outside. And I think the way that American families typically are set up is they don't really spend a lot of time with their extended families or any, uh, you know, they don't even take care of their, you know, um, uncles and aunts or siblings the way we in the Vietnamese culture do. So that does take a lot of time. And the nuance of that conversation uh, are things that um, are coming up as I'm thinking about, you know, I'm always like trying to find a way to, to improve uh, our outreach and our altruistic uh, work. And that's why I do this work because, you know, it's highlighting a lot of the uh, advocates, the people who are working in this community, the um, like the dip trans of the world, which she's a, you know, good girl, Dinette. She's a, a chef, but I love her. Yes. It on, 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 you know, the chef part is, you know, it's like you come to the party because she's a chef, but then you stay at the party because of all this other stuff. I'm trying to make a, 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 a parallel, uh, a corollary here about um, being altruistic with the activists and the advocates and the people that are changing the fabric of society in SoCal for me right now. Uh, whenever I have people like you or Dip Tran or the Ravenous Couple on uh, Chef Two, Chef Two is also you know food, but he's very very into uh, society and and bringing up the inner city, you know Oakland where he's from. And so these conversations um, are conversations that you're right. We are the new crop, and we are we're doing it. We're we're really you know trying to change and convert. Uh, these stories, these narratives, and um, there's people, Vietnamese people across the country that are our generation that are doing it too. Um, Tony Vu, uh, brother of Mimi Vu, they're all people that are are actively working in their communities, uh, whether it be through food or the library system like you, and we'll get into that right now. Um, there's so many people doing good for the community that does not have that, um, that element of money uh, in return. And it's, it's just so amazing to, to hear these stories. And I hope more people are inspired by this young crop of people. Yeah, it's, it's funny because one of the reasons I really connected with Chef 2 is because I, when he told me about his film and I, I laughed when his dad asked him if he was going to make money off of Top Chef. It was such a similar moment. Yeah. Um, and, you know, he's taken his platform in so many different ways. And, you know, he just announced the other day that he's writing a cookbook with Salel Ho, who is the first restaurant critic in America who's Vietnamese. And she is not just a restaurant critic. She is also um, talking about issues that are really interesting and important that have to do with food and food justice. And, you know, she she talks about, like, why is, quote, ethnic food you know, supposed to be cheaper? And why, why are we even using the word ethnic when it comes to food? And, um, and so, so we talk a lot about these issues of, you know, why, why is, why is the food that we, you know, our culture making so much cheaper in people's minds? And, and, you know, why won't people pay for something that actually takes a ton of labor to make? Yeah. And, 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 and you know what the most fucked up thing is? It's our people. It's our It's our people who are always doing it. And I'm, I go it's, to chefs yeah. and I say, I want you to make this more expensive. Like I would like to pay, you know, I've, I've told chefs, if I paid $2 more for this meal, 
um, it wouldn't mean that much to me in terms of my bottom line, but it would mean a lot to you in terms of your bottom line. We, and, no. and, we, and, and it's worth it. Your food is worth it. Yeah. We in Lei over at Beu. Um, yeah, we talked about that quite, quite a bit. And um, I haven't listened to that, that interview as much, but, you know, I, I love her food and yeah. I love, you know, her background. And, um, you know, I, I lived in Silver Lake as, as a baby. And, and so I consider myself from Silver Lake and, and, it, and she's making the first Vietnamese food that feels like home, you know, homemade food to me. There have been other Vietnamese places, um, you know, Blossom was in Silver Lake for some time and it's also very good, but it's all, but it's like traditional like pho, which is, you know, something that I didn't really grow up eating a lot at home versus um, like Titka, which is something that I always crave mm -hmm. and, and love. And, and I love that that Beu is making that. Yeah, there's so many pockets of these Vietnamese um, young people. I mean, young is like, you know, basically our age, but that are doing. Uh, I these think we're middle aged now, just. <laughs> FYI. So crazy. Sorry, I'm sorry to inform that. you. We're getting old. <laughs> All right. Well, let's talk about the library system because I can't help but, uh, and I've talked to other Vietnamese librarians recently too. The digital age is here. I listen to a lot of Audible uh, books. I read my stuff on my phone. Um, I can't remember the last time I stepped into a library, but you and I had a discussion, you know, in person, we, we sat and we talked about this and that I want to hear uh, for the record, why are libraries so important today? Um, so I have been serving as commissioner for the library system for the past nine years. It, it means that, um, and, and I serve as president of the board, we oversee the library department for the city of Los Angeles, which includes um, 73 libraries and it's the second largest library system in the country. Um, we serve millions of people a year and we actually do have tons of foot traffic. The library system is not simply the old dated place that you remember as a kid where you just came and picked up books. Um, I actually would love to take you to Central Library. It is an incredible place. It's not only an architectural marvel, but it includes really new things like the Octavia Lab, which is a maker space and a memory lab where people are now scheduling time to use 3D printers and laser cutters. And there's a podcast studio in it. Wow. Um, but there, the memory lab is very interesting. People are bringing in photographs and VHS tapes and using our equipment to digitize it so that they can have access to it um, on their computers. And so it's, it's, it's an amazing place. And, and actually the first, the founding director of the Octavia Lab is a Vietnamese librarian named V Ha. And she's, you know, she's very forward thinking and was able to see it as a place that people could gather to do really amazing things and to make amazing things. So people are starting businesses by making things out of the library. And it's, you know, it's all free. We have, um, we have the highest circulation of any library in the country of e um, of e media, and so that includes like ebooks, um, digital magazines. There's um, audio books, things that you and anything that you can check out. You can request books that the library doesn't own through that system, and when the library purchases it, it automatically goes into your hold. And so I always tell people to you know 
to use that system that because the library is now in your pocket. Um, but we also do really amazing things for people that are life-changing. We have a, a career online high school program that just graduated last week. Um, I think we are at like 697 graduates. It's a fairly new program. It started first um, in, um, in prisons where people were studying to, um, to get their high school degrees. And then we were the first library system to adopt it. And it's now been being used in dozens of library systems across the country. But what, what we do is we let people test into where they were in high school if they were able to go to high school at a point and then dropped out. So let's say you were a junior in high school when you dropped out, you get to finish the final year with your, you know, your old credits and then um, and then you get a degree. It is, it is an actual degree. It is not a GED. And, wow. um, and then there are people who are immigrants who did not get to go to high school. So they're doing the entire program through us. And, you know, I get to be the person who hands out diplomas, which is really fun. But it's, it's just, it's, it's like a, a place of second chances in some ways. And in, in, in other ways, it's a place of first chances for people where we have immigrants who come in and they want to learn how to deal with their legal paperwork. We help people with DACA applications, but we, we also give them, um, we help them with classes where they can become um, study for the citizenship test and then become citizens through the library. And so I, you know, I've been part of citizenship programs where, where parents have become citizens and then their children automatically become citizens as well. So we bring in all the kids and we give them little wow. flags and, and swear them in at the library. Um, and it's, it's a really cool thing. I don't know if you've ever listened to the oath that people have to take to become citizens. Were you, were you born here or I was born um, here. So, so for anyone who's born here, we've never had to take this pledge. Right. But if you listen to it, it's actually really deep and really meaningful. And you have to pledge that if one day that the nation is in, in war and needs you to fight for it, that you are willing to take up arms for the United States of America. And, you know, we take our American citizenship for granted, but what people are, you know, are fighting to get to do is really, really meaningful. And through the work that we did with our citizenship program, which we call the New Americans Initiative, um, the, there, there's an organization that gives out these gold medals to libraries. And we, we, we got um, the gold medal for library service and, um, and our city librarian was able to go to the White House and receive this honor from Michelle Obama. And it was, it's, it was a really beautiful thing. And, and he was able to bring um, this couple who had become citizens through this, you know, through our program and they got to go to the White House. And it was sort of this fulfillment of the American dream that they got to be at the White House. And, um, you know, after, after working so hard. And so, you know, I, I think of the library now as a community center. It's a very welcoming place for everyone. Um, there's not that many places where if you don't have any money, you can just spend as much time as you want there. Mm -hmm. And you can hang out. Um, you, can, you can get help for a number of things, you know, whether you need a job, whether you need to use a computer, um, we have access to so many of these things. And we also bring in partners who are helping people with things like 
COVID vaccinations. Um, we have we have people who come in and help people with eye exams and then give them glasses. So, you know, there's there's a lot of things that are happening at the library now that you don't think of as a traditional library thing, but it is a traditional library thing in that libraries are a trusted place where people feel welcome. And it means that, you know, it's it's for everyone. I don't think that I've ever thought of it that way. And I used to go to the library as a kid. My parents dropped my brother and I off a lot. And we mm -hmm. spent hours and hours there. And it shaped who we are. Um, mm -hmm. Because when I joined the military, uh, funny story, uh, it's a little uh, shameless uh, story about myself. I'm very proud of this story, actually. Mm -hmm. um, I was in the Marine Corps and um, my second, third and fourth year, I was stationed in San Diego and I was um, a clerk and had a lot of free time as a clerk. And I would go to the library every week. I would check out 10 books and I would just keep 10 books around and I would browse through most of them to see which book I wanted to keep for the week. And so I would keep one or two to read. It was a great job. And so I read so much and that went on for three years. And um, sometime in the uh, half of the third year, the base generals um, throughout the Marine Corps, the entire world were, um, were asked to figure out a campaign to get their Marines to read more. So they came up with all these different strategies and our base Marine, there was like 5,000 Marines on that base, came to the library and said, how do you think we can motivate people? Um, you know, we have this idea to, um, to, to motivate uh, Marines, but uh, how, do, how should we do this? And then I think the library team sat down and said, well, we have an idea. Why don't we take a picture of some Marines reading and we'll call up the base print shop and they'll come in and take pictures. And then, so the general was like, um, oh, you have any names? And they're like, yeah, there's this kid here. He's taken out the most books. And so I was like one of four Marines uh, to take a picture with the, with the base general because of the amount of books I, 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 drew, I, I pulled out. And now that we're talking, it's so weird that we're talking about this now because it really did shape um, my worldview because I was reading a lot of books about film at the time, from the time I was 19 to, to 21, those three years, 19, 20, 21, yeah. I was reading a lot of books about film and about Spielberg and about George Lucas. And it shaped my sort of kind of like career trajectory later because of that time spent in the library. And God, it, it's made such an impact. And now that I think about it, my parents, you know, took us to the library all the time when we were growing up. Yeah. And same for me. And I think, you know, literacy was really important to my parents because they were teachers in Vietnam and they felt like if I learned how to read and write very early, that it would help my career. But I also think libraries were babysitters. You know, yeah. they, were, they, were, they were a safe place for them to drop us off. They knew that, you know, if they came back six hours later, we would be fine. And, and I preferred, you know, the house was kind of chaotic when I was a kid, you know, with multi-generational families. It's just, there's just a lot of people around all the time. And, um, and my, you know, when I was really young, my, 
my brothers and I and my parents slept in the same bedroom. So that was just a lot. And then later on, we moved and both my brothers and I were in the same bedroom. So it was always just hard to get time to yourself to do anything. And so I loved the library because it was a quiet place that I could go and, and I would go find a corner and sit on the ground with a pile of books. And so, you know, at one point, my, there was a library within walking distance that was really small. It was kind of like a pocket library and it was the Del Mar branch of the Los Angeles County system. And I read so many books. The librarian came to me and said, look, you need to get your parents to drive you to the Rosemead library because you have run out of books to read and I I can't help you anymore. The Rosemead. the Rosemead Library on uh, Valley and Rosemead by the Bank yeah, of America. Yeah, so then I spent a lot more time there. There's <laughs> also the, the Monterey Park Library is, is, is also a really great library. I remember in the early 2000s when the Patriot Act passed and the U.S. government was trying to get li- libraries to give up information about what people were reading and checking out, um, the Brueggemeyer Library was the the librarians there were some of the first to say, you know, you can arrest me. I will never give up the information of what my patrons are reading. And so I think, you know, librarians are not simply um, people who are helping with, you know, whatever you need to check out. They're also huge fonts of information. They are now sort of like social workers when they are helping people with all of these services but they are also defenders of the first amendment. They are defenders of, you know, our rights as Americans to, you know, access the information that we need. And um, the UN in 2016 declared internet as a human right. And the library is the place where people can go to get internet access for free. Um, People actually line up outside our libraries before they open to get access, which actually makes me really sad because it means that, you know, there's there's still people who don't have access at home. And um, and then sometimes people sit in our parking lots to get Wi-Fi access. So during the pandemic, you know, even after our library shut down, we made sure that the Wi-Fi was still turned on so that people could continue to use it if they if they really, really needed it, they could access it outside the building. I want to segue into the the red campaign. I remember in 1985, I was 10 years old, and um, the song We Are the World came out. And um, I, to this day, uh, love, 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 love that song very, very much because of all of these 80s uh, icons throughout the United States came together in one night. Um, and there's actually a movie being made about that film right now. Oh, I didn't know that. I was just going to tell you there's a really great article about that, about that, where it, it talks about the people and how it all came together. And, and it's, it's, it was just a fascinating night. Yeah. I I can't talk about it, but uh, I'll talk to you privately about, um, yeah, it's being made right now. And it's a dear friend of of, of mine that's uh, behind. Oh, I can't wait. Yeah. And um, I bring it up because um, I think about that song and the way that they came together to raise money for for Africa. And I think about the the red campaign. I wore those shirts. I lived behind a gap during that time. Yeah. And I bought like maybe four of them. And, you know, I kind of read the tags and I understood it. And then to see this and now I'm like uh, really wanting to hear the history and really 
wanting to see, you know, can Vietnamese Americans get together to do some, some work uh, similar to We Are the World or the Red Campaign uh, to do some work for the Vietnamese uh, world. Um, and I don't think Vietnam, Vietnam needs help like Africa did. But, you know, this idea of community service um, like We Are the World and the Red Campaign is so interesting. And I want to hear your involvement in it. And possibly what what would you know that look like for the Vietnamese um, around the world? What what can we do to kind of strengthen our um, the, the unity and and to move past all of the um, the war trauma? Yeah, and you know, and talking about we are the world and red, I think so much of it is celebrity driven. Yeah, and so you know, I think if we wanted to do it for a, a Vietnamese cause, um, one of the things is I think as Asian people and Vietnamese people become more prominent in America, I think paying attention to who possibly could band together to do something mm. of that scale, it could, could be really cool and yeah. could be very meaningful if, if, you know, if people can agree on a particular thing. And um, Red came together because Bobby Shriver and Bono you know, said that, you know, AIDS in Africa at this point is an emergency and we'd like to figure out a way to help. Um, and, and, you know, they had this idea that if they got a bunch of really big brands to work together on products at the same time that, you know, people would be buying things that they wanted anyway, things like phones and shoes and shirts. And if we made it cool, then, people would buy it and the companies would pay into the global fund. So we wouldn't be handling the money. We wouldn't have to run a charity per se wow. and, and dealing with like, who's actually going to get the money. Cause the global fund was already established and was taking in a lot of money from governments. The U S government was actually the, the, the biggest, um, the, the biggest contributor to the global fund. And it was fighting not just um, AIDS, but also things like TB and malaria. So, you know, so we, so, so the campaign was, we just, we, we are the brand that brings together a bunch of other brands. And, and that's actually really hard. It had never been done before on that scale. Most people who were getting involved with things like breast cancer, um, they would do something and they would, you know, make their item pink, but they were not actually standing together as brands to say, we have a single cause that we are going to contribute money toward. And, you know, the success of Red, um, I, I think came because we came out at the right time. We were the first and, and we had huge celebrities who were, you know, who, who wanted to join the effort. We launched with Bono and Oprah. And, um, and she was a huge force that day when we came out, um, you know, Steve Jobs was, you know, was not a, um, a big proponent of doing like tons of press about it, but he very quietly signed on and Apple has been the biggest contributor simply because they sell so many products. And the fact that, that Tim Cook and, and the Apple brand has continued to do this after, um, Steve Jobs died is a, um, a testament to, you know, their dedication to, to this. And, and, you know, I still get to buy a, a red iPhone today. Um, 
and you know some of the money goes goes toward the global fund which you know they've pivoted a little bit and and are also helping with covid because you know so many people around the world have been affected by by that as well but it was it was a it was kind of an amazing time to be part of something like that i was i was 24 years old i had i met bobby shriver when he came to myspace um he had he had gotten a meeting with our the MySpace CEO, Krista Wolf, and Chris called me and said, I need you to come in right now. I, I think you'd be really interested in this. Because when I first met Chris, I had talked to him about the, um, the genocide in Darfur and explained to him what was happening there. And, and I told him, you know, I would love to do something with, with MySpace to help. And he actually, you know, one day came to me and said, why don't you use our platform to do something about it? So my, my colleagues and I pulled together a, um, a campaign called Rock for Darfur, where we had a bunch of people were doing concerts already, and we tagged on and took something like a dollar off of each ticket to raise money and, um, and branded a bunch of concerts as Rock for Darfur. And, um, so that was that was also something that was piggybacking off of things that already existed. And I think that's part of when trying to do something big, you you want to think about what already is big mm. that I can be part so, of. And instead of, you know, starting it from yeah. scratch. And so so Chris knew that I was thinking, you know, on on some of these big things and and wanted to use our platform to help and, and was really cool about letting me use MySpace for that. Um, and so he said, you know, you need to meet this guy and, and, you know, Bobby came in, he's like a hurricane of energy. And he came in waving this American express card that was red. And it was, you know, he hadn't even finished the deal with American Express yet. And it was a dummy card, but he wanted to show like, this is the physical manifestation. What if every time you went to the store and, and swiped your credit card, a, you know, you're not giving money to, to, you know, to this cause, but the credit card is doing it. And, um, and so he and I became friends and, we, you know, we worked out a deal where MySpace was part of the Red launch, and then eventually I moved on to work at Red full time, wow. and and we launched it in America, and so um, it was it was so fun to be part of something mm -hmm. so big and so impactful, and you know, I I think the Global Fund has received something like eight hundred million dollars for you know for this cause. Um, and I got to be on the ground floor of that and, and really learn what it took to launch. So it's, it was such a, a fun ride and Bobby and I are still close. I, I think of him as a mentor. Um, and so it was one of the most meaningful times of my life. And I always think, you know, it's, it's also one of the times when, when I've gotten to raise a huge chunk of money yeah. and, uh, I don't think my parents asked if I was getting any of that cut at least. <laughs> I, I think I've uh, stumbled upon what uh, you should be doing next. You should be creating libraries in Vietnam. That's what it is. That you know, I, don't, I don't think that there's the kind of libraries like Central Library here in LA or, or Rosemead. I don't think that those libraries, that kind of actual structure 
exists in Vietnam. I could be wrong. I mean, but yeah. as I'm sitting here, there's librarians, Vietnamese librarians that um, I'm beginning to, to know more about. This mm -hmm. might be an initiative that, that could be fun um, because this idea of scholastic freedom or academic freedom or intellectual freedom um, and it's just an idea of having more education, more knowledge being circulated around Vietnam. Um, and I think that the government of Vietnam is very open to that way of thinking. Um, as I'm doing more and more um, conversations with people uh, within Vietnam, uh, the government wants to be competitive. And the way you get competitive is to spread knowledge throughout the country. And with knowledge comes um, other wonderful benefits of, um, of society. Yeah, that's an interesting thought. I have not spent a ton of time in Vietnam. I went about 10 years ago for a month and I'd like to go back at some point. And um, I've not really thought about libraries in Vietnam. I think the person we should talk to about is maybe um, Gwen Mai because you know, she's from there and has also spent a lot of time thinking about access to books and, and she's there right now um, and, and her book has made it there. But I think a lot of American authors, Vietnamese American authors have had trouble getting their books um, to yeah. Vietnam. I think sometimes because of the content of their books. And so uh, I'm, I feel right. like we know enough people we should, we should talk to about it. I had an episode with Jikwe Mai last night. Um, uh, I had her and Leili Hayslip on, um, we did a, a, uh, an episode um, for, um, a to release in a few more, uh, two more weeks. Uh, oh, that's awesome. Yeah. I yeah. love her so much. She's so generous. I mean, that's like, if I can describe Jikwe Mai in one word, she's like the most generous person um, with uh, her time, with her um, connecting uh, with her accolades, uh, her support, She's just a very uh, generous human being. But, but you know, you, you start to see the patterns, right? Like you, you see like um, I, there's a tip of the, of the iceberg, which is her book, The Mountains Sing, right? And you read the book and you're like, okay, in order to get a human being to express that beautiful story and wrap it up in a beautiful bow and, and, and get it out into the world, that human being has got to have generosity. Like when you read The Mountains Sing, you realize it's a book about love. It's about uh, love that spans generations and, and, and throughout our entire um, diaspora, in the homeland, all of it, Vietnamese. And then you get to know the person, um, you see thematically that this person is very generous and very loving and very, you know, interested in, in all of it. And then I get to study somebody like you. And I'm beginning to see, I mean, I've been doing this work for a while now, and I'm beginning to see like the things that people are gravitating towards, right? Like in your life, it's community build, building on a, on a grand scale, on a big scale, how to mobilize and what you just said about um, red and the campaign uh, you learn that you know in order to to kind of move these things you don't take things from ground zero you got to kind of piggyback on on a bigger movement and and you can work it from there and leverage it and i'm seeing that you know your whole life is uh community building community organizing and and advocating for people with um lesser opportunity 
And then one day you're going to go out and you're going to do something and people all of a sudden know of your name. And it's like, they just see the, the mountains sing the book. They just see that one thing. And then when you start to dig back and peel back the layers and you realize, no, 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 uh, from day one, you are fighting for, you know, um, the schools, uh, the schools being uh, underfunded, and you know, and that's such the beauty of my, like my 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 journey with the community is to see people like you and Chikwe Mai, and to see and peel back in these long form episodes to to hear it, and you know, to bring people back on like Chikwe Mai. Now, now we're getting into a groove, and you know, we're talking about like issues, and I'm, I'm hoping to put together a librarian episode. Uh, with Danny Tianlei uh, up north. And um, now I'm hearing that there's more uh, librarians across the country. And I'd never thought that it was such an important thing, but now I'm starting to see that this is community building and community activity, and we need to continue doing this work. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so today was uh, the start of our, um, our, um, our conversation about community building between uh, you and I. And I would like to bring you back on um, for a bigger podcast um, um, episode with uh, several librarians that I know, and potentially maybe um, somebody that you know, you just brought up uh, somebody at the, uh, at the LA library. And I want to do um, an episode on librarians and the library system because it is a very, very important part of living because I'm uh, friends with some libraries and I watch the activities that they do online. For example, the Linda Lindas, right? Um, having those girls come in to perform. What, it's, uh, it was at the LA Central Library, right? Well, they performed at the Cypress Park Library okay, um, during sorry. the pandemic a year ago. And that, that video just kind of went bonkers. And, um, and it was such a great moment to have these kids who were yeah. um, Asian and Latinx who um, were, were talking about racism and sexism in their songs. And they were so young. I actually saw them at the Troubadour on Sunday. Um, their record came out last week and it's very good, especially for, you know, for these kids who are still in um, middle school and high school. And they are such powerful performers. You can kind of see sometimes that, you know, they're still very awkward because they're teenagers, but they also have so much in them. And I, I talked to a couple of them. I said, you know, I was a little punk rock kid and um, I'm now president of the library system in LA. So, you know, it's, it's, it's funny how your trajectory can, can really go from, you know, really loving music as a kid. And I can trace loving punk rock into everything that I do today, because I think so much of that music is about wanting change and about being, um, you know, um, not, not so much like anti anything, but really being, being against like the status quo and trying to, trying to get something different out of life. And so um, I, I always really, you know, loved going to punk rock shows as kids. So it was funny to be in a room full of kids 
playing punk rock to other kids and actually being the uh the old lady at the show <laughs> it was it was really fun so so yeah you know we we have punk rock at the libraries we yeah. have you know high school at the libraries there's there's a lot going on in our library system that is so far beyond what people think of as traditional libraries today thank you for coming on spending such a long time with me Thank you. It's it's been great to meet you and and to learn more about you as well. I I listen to your podcast all the time, so it's it's really great to connect. Thank you. I appreciate the kind words. Thank you for listening to the Vietnamese with Kenneth Nguyen. The Vietnamese is produced by Brittany Tran. Special thanks to Jane Nguyen, Catherine Nguyen, Tina Pham, Sydney Jamie, and Christo Trin. Please find us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at the Vietnamese Podcast. You can also find us on YouTube where you can subscribe, like, and comment. Please rate and give us a review wherever you find our podcast. Thanks again for listening.